Hi, I'm Patrick Henningsen, host of the Sunday Wire, and you are listening to the Alternate Current Radio Network. Uh, there's a lot going on up on the uh, North Yorkshire tundra, uh, and Ian R. Crane is live right now at the Kirby Misperton uh, Protection Camp, and uh, he is on the front lines of one of the biggest, uh, most important battles uh, going on right now. This is, uh, in my view, uh, the corporation and the government entities have merged uh, to form one entity, and I believe, by definition, this is the definition of corporatism or fascism, uh, which was put forward by Benito Mussolini so articulately back then, even for a dictator. Uh, and we're going to Ian Crane right now, who's on the front line of this fight. Hello, Ian. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Mike. How you guys doing? We're, we're doing pretty good. Is it, uh, is it cold up there? Uh, it has been. Um, last week, we uh, endured sort of sub-zero temperatures and quite a lot of snow. Um, but yesterday the temperature increased quite significantly today. It was about nine, 10 degrees. Actually, it was almost like a, a summer's day. Uh, so unfortunately we're now having to dure with the, uh, in, uh, the aftermath of the, the snow. So it's, uh, it's a little moist and muddy, but uh, nothing we can't handle. And for, for those people, Ian, that aren't, um, uh, expressly familiar with this issue, uh, up there, firstly, just explain to our listeners again, briefly, why why you're there why the people are up there with you and what what is the the force um that you're up against there and what what why why is this such an important issue okay well this is um unconventional gas exploitation um and uh you know i spent 20 years in the oil and gas industry with the uh with the oilfield services company schlumberger and you know i don't really have any fundamental issue with the uh, abstraction of conventional uh, hydrocarbons. I mean, I can certainly argue the case that we've never needed to exploit them uh, in the volumes that we do. And, uh, you know, there's certainly absolutely no need to be still abstracting 90 million barrels equivalent of hydrocarbons every day. Um, but, you know, as, a, as an industrial um, uh, economy to uh, keep moving and unfortunately you know uh, we are also in a petrodollar economy at least at the moment uh, so you know 90 million barrels is pushed onto the consumers and uh, we have to pay for it um and as the hydrocarbons industry sort of approaches the twilight years of its dominion and by twilight i probably mean 30 to 50 years um but you know many other countries are moving away from uh, hydrocarbons and putting phenomenal amounts of investment into uh, renewables such as solar and uh, wind and of course the technology for solar capture is improving exponentially as is the battery technology um, and in fact i believe i think it's in victoria state has become the first uh, uh, state to implement a tesla uh, battery um, field uh, to store the power that is produced, you know, during the uh, the daylight hours, um, so that it's not uh, it's not lost if there's excess power generated, then it's stored and then is pumped into the grid at night. But here in the UK, um, the uh, Conservative government, which of course is absolutely in the pockets of the uh, corporatists, 
the funding for renewables has been um, substantially reduced and so much so that uh, a number of companies that produced uh, wind turbines and solar panels are actually moving overseas because their market is being killed off here. And it's being killed off because of the subsidies that are provided to the uh, oil and gas industry. And unconventional gas is a very different process from conventional uh, abstraction. It's the process of getting hydrocarbons out of what is known, also known as tight geology, which is a pretty good description. Uh, so it doesn't give up its hydrocarbons easily. Basically, it has to be uh, forced to give up those hydrocarbons. And this is achieved by pumping phenomenal volumes of fresh water mixed with uh, an extremely toxic cocktail of chemicals and sand into the geology to allow the gas, uh, or in some cases, as in the south of England, the oil to flow. Now, the process is not novel. It has been used for some 20 odd years uh, in the US and a little over 10 years in Australia. And not to not to put too fine a point on it, everywhere where this industry has established a foothold, it has left a trail of absolute devastation. Um, it's uh, contaminated water supplies. It's contaminated soil. Um, it, it's caused uh, massive increases in uh, methane content in the atmosphere. Um, it has a horrendous impact on livestock. Um, it has an impact on unborn children. Um, in uh, Vernal in Utah, there's been a spate of, of prenatal uh, deaths and, um, and postnatal uh, deaths and, and uh, birth defects. And the only thing that's changed in the area is that the fracking industry, the unconventional gas industry has rolled into town. So with all the evidence um, from around the world, it is almost unthinkable that, uh, you know, the British government could be still pushing this agenda when it hasn't even got started in this country yet, but they're still pushing it. And so here at Kirby Misperton, this is potentially going to be the first frack in this country since um, a moratorium was implemented in December 2012 and that morato uh, sorry um, the moratorium was implemented in August of 2011 and that moratorium was implemented as a direct result of Quadrilla fracking a well at Priest Hall uh, just outside Blackpool and damaging the well and also uh, pumping fluids into a fault line which triggered a couple of minor, relatively minor seismic events, uh, but enough to cause damage in some 80 properties. I mean, not big damage, but cracks in walls, cracks in bathroom tiles and the like. But 80 odd properties reported damage. The government put a moratorium, a temporary ban on the process uh, pending further scientific investigation. That moratorium was lifted in December 2012. So we are almost at the fifth anniversary since the moratorium was lifted. And yet we are only now on the cusp of the very first frack. And you know, there's been a number of factors as to why it's taken so long to get to this point. Uh, one is not least the um, dramatic fall in oil prices in that time. I mean, the oil price has fallen from uh, just over 100 bucks a barrel. It went all the way down to about twenty eight dollars. Um, and is now back up to uh, just under 60, I think.
I think, uh, the latest numbers. Um, but it's still below the $75, which it would be re- really necessary to make it uh, vi- a viable process in the UK. But that really doesn't seem to be uh, you know, a bit of a problem for these uh, companies, which are all operating in phenomenal levels of debt, primarily to ensure that they'll never make a profit. Um, and they're all basically cowboy companies. And, you know, when you add all of these factors together, then it shouldn't really be a great surprise that the anti-fracking community, because that's what it is, it's a community, it's not an organisation, it's a community, uh, which covers the length and breadth of the country. And basically, as soon as somebody takes a look at this industry for themselves, and they look at all the evidence that's available to see what devastation this industry has caused over the last uh, you know, decade and a half or so, then people realize that this is something that shouldn't be being done anywhere, but certainly not on a densely populated island like the UK, particularly uh, an island that is absolutely reliant on the natural weather cycle for water supplies. Uh, whereas, you know, in the US, they're taking water out of the Great River System, the Great Lakes, and the deep underground aquifers over in the west of the country. In Australia, they're taking the water out of the Great Artesian Basin. We don't have any of, of that. You know, we are totally reliant on the natural cycle. And uh, so, there, like I said, there are so many factors here which beg the question as to why are they pushing ahead with this? And um, uh, as I say, they haven't fracked yet. They're on the cusp of it. But we're still doing everything we possibly can to try and actually uh, stop that from happening because if it does happen in this country it's not a question of if it's just a question of when and it might take two years might take five years might even take 10 years if they're lucky but uh, eventually exactly the same issues will manifest here as have manifested everywhere else it's been a disaster in other places and the thing i want to ask you ian is you you mentioned the oil and gas are subsidized uh in the uk oil and gas companies getting subsidies from the government and i hear from especially from the conservative government and about the they're always um uh, eulogizing in an evangelical fashion about the wonders of the free market and we believe in the market and the market forces and etc cetera, etc cetera. So what is subsidies for oil and gas other than state-controlled, state-funded industry? Is, is this not what, what the reality is? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. And, um, I, I mean, those subsidies are sometimes direct subsidies. You know, it's cash payments for particular projects. Uh, but most of the time, it's subsidies through massive tax breaks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I mean, you know... The government, you know, is reducing the number of people employed by um, HMRC, the revenue collection part of the government. And, uh, you know, they, they all put effort into going after small businessmen who, you know, might have um, uh, tried to be tax efficient, um, but they're perhaps not as skilled at it as the, as the corporations. But they're an easy target for HMRC. You know, what they're not going after is they're not going after the multinationals. They're not going after the Amazons. They're not going after the Googles. They're not going after the Microsofts um, or the Facebooks. You know, they, they go after the, uh, the smaller fish. And then what they do is with the oil companies, because the oil companies have got the British government by the proverbial cojones, 
um, you know, the oil and gas industry say, I'm sorry, but, you know, um, we just can't pay that amount of tax or we need some a tax break on this. We need a tax break on that. Um, they basically get it. And, you know, a classic example of that. And this isn't this is a bit downstream. But um, Jim Ratcliffe, who is the private owner of Ineos, and we'll be talking about Ineos in a little bit because Ineos have literally um, at the moment they have succeeded in obtaining an injunction which effectively prevents any active opposition against that company. Um, but Ineos uh, is a massive organization, primarily um, uh, chemicals and plastics, but they also own the refinery at Grangemouth. And, and a few years ago, Jim Ratcliffe wanted to um, basically destroy the unions because the unions were trying to protect you know, some of the benefits that they had achieved for their members at the Grangemouth refinery. And, and Ratcliffe basically wanted to undermine and destroy the power of the unions. So he went into a sort of head to head with them and then basically went to the British government and said, you know what, I, I'm actually um, get thinking I'm just going to shut this uh, refinery down. And, uh, you know, the British government panic instead of saying, go on, then, you know, shut it down, uh, call his bluff. But, um, you know, the British or nationalize it, which the Tory government isn't about to do anytime soon. But anyway, what they did was uh, they said, well, what do you need? What do you need? And, and Ratcliffe said, well, you know, basically I need 134 million. And uh, so he got 134 million. And then, you know, not too long afterwards, coincidentally, he buys a yacht, the Hampshire 2, for 130 million. Mm. And, and coincidentally, the running costs were 4 million a year. So... Um, you know, and, and just to put it in perspective, you know, Ratcliffe's personal wealth is listed at 5.5 billion. And, um, you know, the, the debt of Ineos is uh, coincidentally roughly around about the same number. Now, you know, if a small businessman was doing that, and I mean, other businessmen have done it in the past. I mean, uh, um, some of your listeners may remember Polypec, um, uh, you know, which was effectively a Ponzi scheme. But, uh, you know, some of these people, they literally treat the capital in the company as their own personal equity. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what um, Ratcliffe does, basically, you know, because uh, the company has a, a debt which is equivalent to his personal wealth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's pretty clear what's been siphoned out of the company and into uh, into Ratcliffe's uh, own personal account so he has a very very nice lifestyle um but you know a, a while ago he didn't like the british tax regime so he moved the company to switzerland so it's ostensibly a swiss company and uh, yet you know, he has managed to acquire uh 1.2 million acres of licensed area across the north of england which um he now has licenses you know to uh, explore and ultimately frack um and what he's done is earlier this year in July, he asked the courts for a secret hearing so that he could or his company could present the case for getting an injunction against any dissent against that company's activities. And, and obviously they, they used uh, video footage, photographs, news reports of all of the direct action and the um, protection camps uh, that have followed this industry. So, you know, obviously the camp at Balkham in 2013, 
the camp and the opposition at Crawberry, uh, uh, sorry, at Barton Moss in Manchester in 2014, and then at Crawberry Hill and West Newton, uh, and then various other locations around, and then ultimately up here at Kirby Misperton. And, and basically they said that we need a secret hearing because uh, if anyone's aware of this hearing, then some of our employees and our business premises might be at risk from domestic extremism. Well, you know, the anti-fracking community has no history of violence or of property damage. Um, despite what the government and the media might try and, and portray, there is absolutely not a single case of violence or uh, property damage. And um, so the judge heard that uh, their plea and awarded the injunction on their behalf. And that injunction was absolutely draconian. It not only um, prevented people from any form of protest, it actually prevented them from making any negative comments about the company or any of its employees on social media. Now, once obviously that ruling came into the public domain, it was fortunately challenged. And it's been challenged by two individuals, um, Joe Corrie, who is the son of um, uh, Vivian Westwood. And uh, Joe uh, has been supportive, very supportive of the anti-fracking campaign over the last uh, few years. And he decided that he was going to mount his own challenge. And then a, a frontline activist, basically, uh, by the name of Joe Boyd, uh, who is funding his challenge through um, crowdfunding. And the, the two guys um, uh, put together a very robust challenge. They were in court in September. And the judge heard their evidence and he realized that this basically was not quite as Ineos had presented it in court. And he made it clear he, he thought he had been misled in the earlier hearing. Anyway, in September, he decided that as only one day had been scheduled for uh, um, the response, he needed three days. So he set a three day hearing, which occurred at the um, end of October, beginning of November. And uh, in the three day hearing, um, he heard the evidence from obviously once again Ineos and also from the legal teams representing Joe Boyd and Joe Corey. And uh, then he decided he wasn't going to make a decision straight away. So he deferred the decision until a couple of weeks ago. And um, basically what he did was he lifted the injunction on what it was overall termed harassment. And so consequently, the judge decreed that there was no evidence that um, their their employees um, would be at risk and uh, that there was absolutely no justification from shutting down debate. I mean, he was what was in place was literally, you know, let's say the Ineos want to come into your community. They could simply say we're coming into your community. Um, you know, we'll hold a couple of public meetings, but anybody who wrote anything online, which was negative, Ineos would have potentially been able to argue in court that this was in breach of the injunction and uh, have sought damages. So fortunately, the judge has pulled that away. But what is still in place, and it's not over yet because um, the two Joes are about to submit their um, appeals. But um uh what is still in place effectively is an out 
outright ban on any direct action, i.e. any slow walking of trucks, any locking ons to prevent the trucks from going onto sites, any truck surfing, which is where someone climbs on top of a truck and waits there until they're removed. So anybody who does that will not only have to face the potential criminal consequences, um, but could potentially be hauled back into court by INEOS for breach of injunction. And then if they proved, if they were able to prove loss, they could potentially come after that individual's assets to uh, compensate themselves for any loss they claimed had occurred as a result of that individual's activities. So, uh, and what we do know now, by the way, is that um, the chief constable of North Yorkshire police, a guy called David Jones, actually colluded with the British government and with INEOS to outline this injunction so that they could effectively establish a raft of um, uh, legal ruling that would sit above legislation. And so, as you said, you know, just before I joined you on air, this is prima facie evidence that the UK is rapidly descending into a fascist state, i.e. where government is effectively controlled by the corporations and not just the government, but the whole legal system. So INEOS have effectively purchased a legal ruling here by getting this injunction. And, and this extends also to the police forces as well. The police are out there uh, taking protesters out, uh, manhandling people, intimidating people, uh, enforcing this corporate policy that's come down, uh, which you just described. And so when you have corporations, uh, the, the police acting on behalf, really, of corporate interests, because let's face it, that's what's happening, um, then by definition, you have a fascist state. Yeah, um, a fascist a police state. Yes, it's a corporate no police it. state. There's yeah, no exactly. Way. You can't dance around this fact. This but is yeah, what- Patrick, the, the police are being set up. I mean, I was, um, uh, well, when you and I were in London um, at the event at the Connaught Rooms on um, October 8th, mm-hmm. I was shown, as a member in the audience who works for uh, the British government, and I was shown an email, uh, an inter-department communication. And basically, I'll paraphrase the first part of the email, but I will quote the final sentence because it is indelibly printed on my, on my brain. Uh, and basically, this um, email uh, intimated that North York's police and Lancashire police over at Preston New Road are being set up to destroy the last vestiges of trust between the police and local communities. And, you know, in North Yorkshire, I mean, for the vast majority of people here, their their vision of the police is, you know, Nick Berry riding across the North York Moors on a 1950s moped. You know, this is from the TV show Heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a very low crime area. Um, you know, there's only three custody suites in the whole uh, of the area. Um, and, and obviously those are in the, the cities like York and um, uh, Harrogate. And Scarborough, you know, the rural area is, well, I wouldn't say it's crime free, but crime is at a very, very low level. So the police 
you know, do have obviously a very low profile. But now here, I mean, at Kirby Misperton, I mean, over the last uh, three months, we have seen probably an average of 80 plus police here every single day. I mean, the police have stated themselves that the three months of August, September and October uh, cost them just shy of uh, half a million pounds extra to, as they say, facilitate the protest. But they're not facilitating the protest. They are facilitating third energy. And um, I uh, caught wind very early on in the campaign that they were going to actively try and remove all cameras because they uh, the behavior was intended to be aggressive and they didn't want it caught on camera. And I actually recorded a piece with another journalist uh, stating that, you know, what we would see in the coming weeks was an effort by North Yorkshire police to remove all cameras so that they could you know, be aggressive and it wouldn't be uh, uh, be pumped out on social media. And of course, I myself was the victim of that in September um, where, you know, I was filming outside of the sterile area that the police had created. And even though I was behind the fence, but um, uh, they still decided that they were going to take me out and uh, basically push me into a ditch and then arrested me. And obviously I was held in custody for three hours and then released without charge and with no further action. But, you know, what the arrest had done was serve the purpose of taking me and my camera out of the equation. Now, because of the uh, stink that we caused over that, not just that case, but other cases as well, where we were showing that, you know, uh, the police were rugby tackling um, uh, women as well who had uh, who were filming uh, rugby tackling, bringing them to the ground, arresting them to simply take them out of the way to stop the filming. And uh, now, obviously, because we've been pushing that uh, in a very big way on social media, there seems to be a little bit more of a relaxed attitude towards the filming. But what they haven't done is they haven't in any way, shape or form um, uh, diluted their heavy handedness. So what we're seeing is more hands on policing here. Uh, physical policing and i mean i've got some video of local people absolutely losing it with the police because they cannot comprehend why it is that the police are behaving this way against against a peaceful protest which is primarily local people who are primarily retirees because and so they're no longer police is, is the they're answer. not they are corporate enforcers. Anyway, the final sentence in this memo that uh, I was shown in uh, London, it said the objective is to achieve a motivation for change that is greater than the motivation to remain with the status quo. And, and what they want to achieve is they want to take the police away from the corporate policing. I mean, the police want to be taken away from the corporate policing. So, you know, unfortunately, this is a sort of a mutually beneficial uh, agenda for them but what the government wants to do is it wants to bring in private security to push through the corporate agenda so it wants to bring in the likes of g4s and circo give their operatives the power of arrest um and and basically they'll be operating without the constraints and you know this is very much reminiscent of the comment made by Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1969 in his book between two ages the technotronic era you know when he made the observation that um, future governments would not be constrained by traditional liberal values 
and that's you know that is what's happening here you know the the traditional view is that you know britain's police police by consent uh, dissent is not just tolerated but it's a fundamental part or the people perceive it to be a fundamental part of our, this democracy but uh, in reality the uh, the scales are falling away from people's eyes and uh, you know people are beginning to realize that actually the corporate police state i.e. the fascist state is actually approaching at a phenomenal rate of knots yeah, they espouse liberal values, uh, they, which which are the the principles of liberty. Um, they espouse them rhetorically, but in practice, uh, they're going in the opposite direction. And just tell us quickly, Ian, um, what is where does Barclays Bank uh, fit into this story of fracking in the UK? Okay, well, actually, uh, this well site here is ostensibly Barclays Bank trading as Third Energy, and um, uh, we had quite a campaign going earlier in the year, raising awareness around the country that Barclays Bank was the owner of Third Energy. And then Barclays Bank announced in May, in fact, on May the 11th, that uh, they were responding to the, um, the protests that were uh, going on at bar- branches of Barclays Banks around the country, and they were going to divest their interest in Third Energy. Well, basically, everybody went, oh, that's okay, then, and everybody stopped with those actions. But now... Now that we're on the cusp here, and all the equipment is on the site here, so it is only awaiting Greg Clark, the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, it's only waiting for his sanction uh, to go ahead. And just briefly, and more about him in a second. But um, Barclays haven't divested. They've divested about 20%, but they are still, they still own in excess of 70% of the company. So this is Barclays Bank trading as third energy so we've initiated a campaign it's called tagger barclays uh which is you know spraying onto uh, the barclays windows and before anybody says that's criminal damage what we're encouraging people to do is to spray but using christmas snow or the chalk sprays because these it's good for the holiday season i think that's uh exactly and it's not criminal damage because this stuff just washes off so uh, at the weekend, I mean, uh, last week there was eight Barclays were tagged uh, here in um, uh, North and West Yorkshire. And then we pushed the campaign out around the country. And at the weekend, uh, bar- branches of Barclays as far away as Exeter, uh, Sheffield, Huddersfield, um, uh, Chelmsford in Essex. Um, and, and in Leicester, they actually had a flash mob that went into Barclays and uh, did a uh, an impromptu uh, carol service, but all the carols had been had their words modified to focus on Barclays and Barclays' uh, interest in fracking. So I now refer to this well site as this is Barclays Bank trading as um, as Third Energy, and uh, I just just very briefly said about greg clark you know greg clark hasn't signed off on this and i think greg clark has now realized that this is not just a political hot potato this is a political grenade uh, and because once you know this is signed off like i said earlier it's not a question of if it's just a question of when the uh, contamination and the ultimate devastation starts to manifest and greg clark's a youngish politician i mean he's 50 years of age he's actually from this neck of the woods he's originally from teesside but um, I think the Teesside savvy probably got uh, drilled out of him when he went to Cambridge University. 
anyway, uh, you know, he has a career in business consultancy and then he gets into parliament. Fairly rapid rise to fame. But now as Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, all this falls on his desk. And he is beginning to realize that once he signs this off, his political career is going to rest on a knife edge. Because when this does go south, and it will, then it's all going to come back to him signing this well off at uh, Kirby Misperton. So what's interesting is that all the equipment has been on site and Barclays Bank have been ready to frack here since November the 8th. So all this equipment is sitting on this site. It's costing Barclays about £100,000 a day, but that's just chump change to them. So what does it matter? Um, but it's costing them at least 100000 a day. And of course, that's ramping up. And last week, um, it was announced that there was a loophole in the Infrastructure Act that they were going to close. And because they'd been focusing on closing the Infrastructure Act, they hadn't even looked at this application, which means that this equipment's probably going to sit on this site right through December. Because if he signs it off and uh, Barclays Bank start fracking here, right just outside the village, just before Christmas, then I can see the phenomenal negative PR for Greg Clark that's going to come along with that. So what we're all hoping is that we know a lot of information has been sent to Greg Clark in the last three weeks. And if he didn't realize the magnitude of this political grenade, he certainly does now. And, um, you know, he's probably desperately looking for a way out. But that said, Patrick, I think Theresa May is looking for a way out of this as well. It's not her agenda. The fracking agenda was one she inherited from uh, David Cameron and uh, George Osborne. Um, but, of course, it was too far advanced. There was too many companies that had invested you know, chunks of money for her just to pull the plug. I think she wants something to go wrong. She wants the industry to realize that this is not going to take off in this country and pull the plug themselves so that, uh, you know, there's no potential comeback on these companies trying to sue the government for you know, loss of income, as they could have done, of course, under TTIP. So mm -hmm. it's all to play for. But, you know, the, the reality is that people have to get active. You know, we have become, we, the British, and particularly the English, we have become the most dumbed down, debt-enslaved nation in the developed world. You know, Scotland... Wales, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland have all effectively found it within themselves. They found ways to effectively ensure that this industry will never take off in those countries. So within the UK, it's only England. And, and sadly, whilst the unconventional gas anti-fracking community is growing exponentially <coughs> and, and you know, there are many people tackling this in many many ways it's still not enough it's still not enough and the british government just sees the opposition as an irritation an irritation that you have to put up with to maintain the charade of a democracy well you know what that irritation has to be raised to another level and we have to take it to the level of civil disobedience because if we don't then we are effectively condemning future generations to lives of, I would say, unimaginable misery. But it's not unimaginable because you only got to go online and see the experiences of the communities 
that have had the misfortune to become the collateral damage, i.e. living in the sacrifice zones of this industry. And this is all in less than basically two decades. Mm-hmm. And so, so we people who have uh, you know talked to us and asked us how they you know uh, can learn more about the issue, how can they get involved? I've always pointed them to your uh, Facebook page as a as a good starting point. Um, you know, so if, if if there are people out there that uh, want to you know come up and let's say see what's going on up there in Kirby Misperton with you and the people out there, how, how is is this happening? Are you taking uh, absolutely, absolutely? Oh. I mean, you know, we've pay, we've got places for people to stay if they want to stay overnight. Um, you know, and we, we do encourage people to come down and spend a few hours either on the main camp or down at the gates. Um, and there's always people, especially people from the local community down at the gates. And, uh, you know, because this is this is an industry that is targeting very, very large tracks across the north of England. I mean, you know, people in the south of England are also being targeted in small areas. And I mean, I've given up on the south because the south is people are just too focused on self-gratification so you know whilst there's a very small number of people opposing this in the south of england uh, you know it's not enough this is going to if this gets stopped and in my opinion it will be stopped at some point but it will be stopped because of the actions in the north of england um because you know this is an area right across the the country from the lancashire coast right across to the north yorkshire coast the only part that's not licensed is the high pennines but all of these areas of outstanding natural beauty like the north york moors um uh, the the east yorkshire wolds the uh, west yorkshire um dales right into the lancashire dales the forest of boland all of these beautiful areas of outstanding natural beauty are licensed for fracking so if um, there's a lot of um, uh, communities that have got their own anti-fracking group. And so, you know, just put in frack free and then, you know, your town or um, uh, go to the frack off website. And, and there you'll find a list of uh, not all necessarily, but certainly most of the community groups. And if there isn't one in your area, you know, consider starting one because the beauty of this movement is there is no national organization and and that's really really crucial you know the anti-fracking community is a morass it's well over a thousand uh, community groups and there's no hierarchy there's no structure i mean obviously there is uh, networking primarily through social media and then groups um, helping each other out supporting each other but uh, the beauty of this is that the establishment has no idea how to deal with it. You know, they're very used to dealing with NGOs that have a structure. They have a hierarchy. They have, you know, specialists on this area, specialists on that area. Um, and, you know, they, they use NGOs as a social safety valve. But with this kind of community opposition, they have no idea how to deal with it, except through literally brute force and and extremely aggressive unnecessarily aggressive policing but if they think that that is going to put us off because you know people that have looked at the evidence and they see what will come down the pipe you know the the fact that large tracts of land will become uh, unfarmable in the short term and unlivable in the in the longer term so you know, people fortunately accept that they actually have a social responsibility that once they 
have uh, done that research and they've got this information, they've actually got a responsibility to future generations to actually prevent this from getting a foothold in their area and in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, uh, Mike, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but um, I, I, I think uh, it's this is still a super important issue. Uh, absolutely. I've just uh, one question really for you. And, uh, you mentioned NGOs. I mean, where, where are Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth in this? Well, um, that's a very good question. Um, uh, I have to say that Friends of the Earth over the last couple of years have been extremely helpful, and particularly uh, their Leeds-based office. And, and, of course, it comes down to individuals, and I, I will mention the individual. It's a guy by the name of Simon Bowens, and I have to say that his support to the anti-fracking com- communities uh, in the northeast has been absolutely outstanding. Um, Greenpeace have made some small financial contributions, but, uh, you know, Greenpeace's response is that, well, you know, we, we cover a whole range of issues and they also have a policy of only being able to spend a certain amount of their revenue in any given country. So, I mean, they're there, but they're, they are not, um, significant players, but that, that, but that doesn't really matter so much. And I say, uh, friends of the earth have adopted the right approach, which is, Instead of saying, you know, that's okay, everybody go back to sleep because we're here, friends of the earth here, and we'll take care of it. They might have done that a decade ago, but now they they absolutely had a change of uh, policy. And now what they do is they work on the basis of trying to support communities and saying, how can we help? And if the community says, well, actually, we've got it covered, they say, okay, that's fine. But if a community says, well, you know, actually, we could do with a bit of help. Have you got some legal support that you can offer? Um, And then they will do what they can. And, And that's exactly the way in my opinion, an NGO should have a relationship with a community activist group. But um, beyond that, um, I have to say that, you know, there's NGOs that supposedly focus on water quality and there's NGOs that supposedly focus on the, uh, you know, the quality of life in rural England and um, getting these on board. And I, I mean, there are people working with them, trying to get them to understand that, you know, if they don't start stepping up to the plate, then it's going to have a direct impact on their revenues because people are going to say, well, you know, if you're not actually doing anything about trying to stop this from the destruction of the uh, the country, what are we paying you the money for? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's encouraging to hear that uh, there is some uh, cooperation going on there. And I hope I hope uh, really hope that all the people in these organizations are realizing uh, what's going on and also to acknowledge what you guys are doing there on the ground and what the local communities are doing uh, around the country. If there's some acknowledgement back and forth there, I think there's uh, that's definitely a, a, a good um, development, I think. Um, so that's encouraging to hear. Hopefully we're going to get more of this, Ian, uh, in the coming days and months uh but before we're going to go to a break in a second but uh we just uh, firstly want to thank you for your great work and by the way uh your live streaming on facebook uh from from on site there has been fantastic everybody can go and catch that on ian's facebook page uh follow ian uh and also you'll be able to see alerts as well uh you can i think uh opt into getting alerts for ian's live streams uh which will come straight through on your social media um but fantastic work there great journalism as well ian uh, great presenting and uh you're doing a fantastic job about really getting this issue out to people and just before we go is there anything else that you want to let people know about uh coming up uh, and also where they can also see your your best uh 
live streaming and things like that? Yeah, the, the live streams, I mean, I've, we've got this routine now. I do an 8.30 a.m. live stream. Um, I mean, obviously, once we've done it, it goes out on my Facebook page. But uh, then, um, obviously, once it's done, it's still up on Facebook. And then later on in the day, we put that up on uh, on YouTube. Um, and, of course, um, as is always the case, as we start to get this information out, then social media seems to find algorithms which try to prevent us from getting it out there. So, you know, if people can log on either at the during the live stream or immediately after and share it, then obviously that's greatly appreciated. And one thing I would encourage people to, to do, there's, there's a spreadsheet that I have on my website, frackingnightmare.com. And if you go, if they go to frackingnightmare.com, over on the left-hand side is the, uh, there's um, a, uh, an opportunity to go to downloads. There's only one download on that site. And it's a spreadsheet, and it's the life's work of a lady who unfortunately is no longer with us, Dr. Theo Colborn, and she gifted it to us. And what it is, it's a spreadsheet of the 900-plus chemicals that she identified in the U.S. that are used in this process. And she hasn't just identified the chemicals by name. She has researched to, um, to take a look at what they are used for in the actual fracking process, but also the damage that they cause, the damage to the ecology, the damage to human health, the damage to livestock. And it's all there. It's been downloaded in it over 13,000 times. But obviously, yet it hasn't been downloaded by someone like Greg Clark or somebody else mm -hmm. that has their sort of finger on on the button. Uh, because if they take a look at this, they would start to understand that basically this is an industry that although it will tell you what you want to hear in the first instance and say, oh, we're not using any of those chemicals, which is exactly what the industry told the communities in Australia and in the US. And then when no one's looking, they start to slip these increasingly aggressive chemicals into the mix because that's what gives them their return in terms of the flow of uh, oil and gas. So as I always say, don't take my word for anything that's not the purpose of what i do i'm simply trying to stimulate people's curiosity to take a look at it for themselves and there's a spreadsheet that you can take a look at and once you look at that spreadsheet hopefully you'll also go and take a look at say the documentary which is three years old now voices from the gas fields and look at the first-hand experiences of people living in these sacrifice zones right and uh, just repeat the name of that doctor who put that spreadsheet together again ian it's Dr. Theo, uh, so it's T-H-E-O, Colborn, and he is a lady, despite the name Theo. It's uh, Colborn, C-O-L-B-O-R-N. Okay. Well, we thank her for her, her work as well, her great contribution uh, to the issue, and, uh, and also to you, Ian, and also a big shout-out to everybody at the Kirby Misperton Protection Camp and also all the local residents helping around the camp and helping to facilitate what's a really important action right now. And so big shout out to everybody there and give them our best here from the Sunday Wire, Ian. I, I will indeed. And um, uh, Mike, I will be back in the studio, I think, on Thursday, um, December the 14th for uh, episode 114 of a Fracking Nightmare. Yep, superb. So that, that could be uh, watched live uh, on Thursday, the 14th at 
9 p.m., uh, I guess, in uh, on yes. UK.org forward slash live. So we'll, we'll look forward to that. And also, if you go to the show page now on the Sunday Wire, uh, you'll see Ian Crane's name is highlighted in bold. And if you press through to that link, you'll go to his Facebook page. So check out his uh, morning broadcasts. They are fantastic. They're informative. And I must say, Ian, the quality is exceptional on the picture and the audio. So you're doing a great job on all fronts. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate it, and I appreciate your help in getting the message out there. Yep, there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Ian R. Crane. He is on the front lines of one of the most important fights uh, going on right now in this country. If you believe in environmental issues, social issues, you believe in your community, this issue of fracking is uh, handling all of those areas. So it's a good opportunity to really get involved and make a difference. Uh, And you might just uh, also see Ian out there uh, on the front lines, too, with some great people. We're going to take a short break uh, here at the Sunday Wire, and we'll be back uh, with an exclusive story that ran at 21st Century Wire this weekend that's making some serious ripples uh, right up at, uh, I'm told, government level. Uh, this is regarding Syria uh, and the uh, Foreign Office Conflict and Stability Fund, an exclusive by Vanessa Bealey. We're going to cover that after the break. We'll be right back. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Stay right there. Pick me up, yeah. host of the Sunday Wire, and you are listening to the Alternate Current Radio Network. 